0: Welcome back to the ninth lecture in this series of lectures on ethics in the 20th century. In the last four lectures, I've explored what I call the recovery of normative ethical theory, which has occurred since roughly the late 1960s and early 1970s. In the fifth lecture, I talked about the project of normative ethical theory and how I think it's a project that we can trace from the very beginnings of moral philosophy in the West in ancient Greece. It's a project which divides the possibilities for normative ethical theory into three types, broadly virtue-based theories, broadly rule-based or deontological theories, and broadly consequentialist theories. Now in Lectures 6, 7, and 8 I have looked at the different ways in which these venerable traditions in moral philosophy have been developed by contemporary analytic, anglophone moral philosophers. First of all, John Rawls sort of kick-starts the, the revival of normative theory in his great book, Theory. Of justice by reviving a neo-Kantian style of normative theory. Secondly, we've looked at the various ways in which consequentialists have taken classical utilitarianism and fixed it up in hopes that it will finally be able to respond effectively to its critics. And in the last lecture I talked about the revival of virtue theories, those that are rooted again at least broadly in the great Aristotelian tradition in moral philosophy. Today, I want to do something that brings us a little closer to the concrete work of a single moral philosopher, and I want to talk about a remarkable book that was written in the early 1980s by Alastair McIntyre, a colleague of ours here at Notre Dame. It's a book entitled After Virtue. Those of you who are taking this course for credit will be asked to buy and read this book. It's certainly a book that fits in with what I call last time the virtue tradition in ethics. Indeed, it picks up many of the themes that I associated with with Elizabeth Anscombe's great article, Modern Moral Philosophy, written in 1958. And it's almost as though McIntyre, almost 25 years after that article, takes her advice to sort of approach philosophical psychology in a more sophisticated way and to use that both as a sort of machine for completing her criticism of the utilitarian and Kantian alternatives in moral philosophy in late modernity and also to revive in a rich and compelling way the tradition of the virtues. After Virtue it really is a remarkable work. Here is Professor McIntyre and the cover of this famous book. It's the best-selling book in philosophy in the last Quarter century. It's a book that has attracted not the attention not only of moral philosophers, but a much broader public from literary studies, from the social sciences, from those interested in the trenchant cultural critique that McIntyre deploys in it. After Virtue is unique among the classic works in 20th century analytic moral philosophy, I would say, in its ambitions. It not only responds to most of the controversies in classical metaethics, those controversies that we took up in the opening lectures in this series, and those in normative theory, but it also provides a comprehensive critique of modern culture and some proposals about what would be necessary to reform this culture. Professor McIntyre, himself has been a major player on the stage of Moral Philosophy now for almost half a century. Uh, You will find in your packets of materials for this course a longish article I wrote on his work in Moral Philosophy for a recent book of essays in which I try to trace his work from a master's thesis he wrote in 1951 up to the very work he's doing right now in an office down the hall from me at the University of Notre Dame. His career has not only been a lengthy and distinguished one, but it's one that's involved his thought in many interesting and sometimes surprising developments. He has flirted with various forms of Marxism in his career being especially involved with the Trotskyites movements of the 1950s and 1960s. In the early 1980s, he was a convert to the Roman Catholic Church, he now does his work against the background of what he calls an Augustinian Thomist approach to moral philosophy. What are the main threads of MacIntyre's argument in this book and how do they relate to the larger concerns of ours in this course of lectures on contemporary ethical theory? Well, the backbone of the book involves McIntyre in asking the following kinds of questions. What kind of state is modern Western culture? that culture dominated by liberal democratic theory. What kind of state is that culture in today? How did we get into that state? And if it's a state we should be worried about, how should we think about remedying our problems and building on our strengths? And let me begin with the first question in talking about this book. And I would like to take you through the overall argument of this very, very complex book. And as usual, I'll quit apologizing about these matters, but we will be moving in a very superficial way through the argument of one of the most complex and philosophically sophisticated books in contemporary moral philosophy. But let's begin with that first question. McIntyre's diagnosis of what's wrong with contemporary moral culture, or without begging any questions, we can say his diagnosis of the state of contemporary culture in the West, Northern Europe, the United States, those other pockets of modernity that we find spread around the world. Professor McIntyre's diagnosis, to put it briefly, is pretty grim. His suggestion is that with regard to the moral state of contemporary culture, we find ourselves and our discussions dominated, first of all, by disagreements which are difficult to resolve and indeed in many ways impossible to resolve. He calls our attention early on in the book to what he calls the main features of contemporary moral disagreement and they are three. First of all we put forward moral arguments in our culture where the premises are incommensurable. Incommensurable in the sense that not only do we disagree about the premises of our arguments, but we don't even know how to begin to arbitrate these disagreements. There's no, in the straightforward sense of incommensurable, there's no common measure. He early on in the book looks at three examples of very large-scale disagreements in modern culture, disagreements about the moral status of abortion, disagreements about the moral status of war using violence to uh, achieve our political ends and the moral status of various economic arrangements, the classical problems of social justice. In each of these areas, our debate about abortion, our debate about war, and our debate about uh, social justice, McIntyre argues that there's a wide range of views. He, in this discussion, boils them down to three sort of main views in each area, and each of these views will have behind it arguments of various sorts. These arguments, he wants to say, are all valid in that technical sense in which philosophers use the term valid that is their premises do support the conclusions the only question is are the premises true and this is where we encounter this problem the premises are incommensurable as we know in the abortion d- debate just to take that that example pro life people tend to start with premises about the inviolable nature of human life the absolute right to life, whereas pro-choice advocates tend to start with premises about autonomy and freedom. Hence, they're calling themselves pro-choice. What's most important is the control of persons over their lives. Now, how do we even begin to commensurate this debate, a debate that, on the one hand, pits the right to life with a certain kind of right or sort of privilege with regard to shaping one's own life. McIntyre thinks these problems are very deep, and he thinks that we find similar problems with regard to these other debates I mentioned, the justification of war and our pursuit of various policies for social justice. But it's not only that these arguments have premises which are incommensurable, he suggests that the arguments have different historical origins. Arguments that begin with claims about rights frequently begin in the 17th century. Arguments that talk about the shape of a good life frequently have their origins in the ancient world. Arguments that talk about absolutely compelling laws that govern our action could have alternatively their origins in something like the 12th and 13th century natural law tradition or perhaps Kant's deontological tradition in the 18th century. The third feature of these arguments, though, in contemporary culture, which McIntyre thinks in many ways is the most important feature, is that in addition to having premises which are incommensurable and having different historical origins, they're put forward as having impersonal authority. It's not the case that we sort of engage in moral argument recognizing that ultimately We hold one set of views, our opponents hold another, and we're sort of content, as we might be content, to disagree about styles of food that we prefer or styles of dress. As we all know in contemporary culture, those people who disagree about abortion, about war, and about just economic arrangements in our culture, not only say different things and advocate different positions, but they want to convince the other side, and they're convinced that they're right. Pro-choice people it's not just that they disagree with pro-life people in abortion, they think it's important that pro-life people agree with them and the same way for pro-life people because they believe that the views they're putting forward on the abortion issue, and we could say the same about the war issue or the social justice issue, these views are not just their views, they're the right views, and they're views that come from a certain position that expresses a kind of impersonal authority. McIntyre thinks there's something very puzzling about this. We all recognize that we're caught up in these arguments in which our premises are incommensurable. We're unable to convince each other. We notice that these arguments come from different historical origins, but we put them forward as if they have impersonal authority. We don't slip into a kind of easy relativism about these matters. Rather, we continue to put these arguments forward with the authority, what we take to be the authority of some kind of agency behind them. Now, McIntyre's audacious thesis about this, and this is one of the two or three central ideas in the whole book, is perhaps we should regard contemporary moral life as embodying a set merely of fragments of various moral positions which are left over from various decayed traditions which spawned our culture. You'll recall that in talking very briefly about Elizabeth Anscombe's article, Modern Moral Philosophy, I pointed out that her view was that the modern deontological view is basically built on mere fragment of traditional divine law theory. That is, people used to believe of ethics as being centrally about absolute laws because they believed in divine laws. And she suggests that now, that hardly anyone, at least hardly any uh, people around academia, take God as lawgiver seriously, this uh, theory must be rejected. McIntyre's suggesting here that perhaps this is the case with all of our moral life. We have fragments of Aristotle and fragments of Kant and fragments of Jeremy Bentham. In the morning we wake up and we think like Kant, by noon we're thinking like an Aristotelian in late afternoon we're all utilitarians. This is the audacious proposal. Now one might say here that all McIntyre needs to do to get out of this problem is to recognize that the emotivists were right. Remember the emotivists said we should just think of these moral judgments that are incommensurable, they have different historical origins, they're just expressions of different attitudes. But we can't be emotivists, McIntyre says, because we still think of our arguments as having this impersonal authority. This is the thought that's denied the emotivist. McIntyre does think though, and this is the very important point to understand, that although we can't hold that emotivism is the truth about the meaning of moral judgments, we can believe that our culture is a culture in which, although we put forward moral claims as if they have impersonal authority, as if we're making a claim on truth, we nevertheless act as if We use, as he puts it, we use moral judgments perhaps in an emotivist way. And he wants to say that perhaps we should regard ourselves as living in an emotivist culture for this reason. And this is going to be his claim. He suggests that the fact that we live in an emotivist culture is demonstrated by the dominance of what he calls the characters of modern culture. These are three characteristically important people and I'm not going to spend social roles in our culture, I'm not going to spend much time on talking about them but what they have in common, let's notice them, the Esthete someone, a characteristic figure from uh, modern literature, the Esthete who lives a life trying to put off boredom at all times by pursuing whatever pleasure is possible and The moment a kind of Don Juan figure, Kierkegaard makes this character famous in his diary of the seducer, the manager, one of our sort of modern heroes, the person who can deliver the goods for any ends that anyone proposes. What's characteristic of a manager is the manager never decides what it's important to pursue, but if you decide you want to make widgets, the manager can tell you how to do it. If you decide you want to make nuclear bombs, the manager can tell you how to do that. Two, the manager distances himself from the goodness of whatever ends he might be proposing. And finally, the therapist. It's frequently claimed that we live in a therapeutic culture, the therapist a character who helps people adjust to whatever ends they happen to have. McIntyre thinks that the fact that the aesthete the manager, and the therapist, and I will leave this to each of you to decide whether he's right about this, have such salience in our culture, suggests that we as a culture have distanced ourselves from an evaluation of the ends of our action. But what's most important in McIntyre's view is his view about how we got to this point. How did we get to a state where we're living in a culture of fragments? Well he suggests that the answer to this question is that there was something called the Enlightenment Project and it's not going to surprise you that McIntyre is going to argue that we got this way because of episodes in the history of moral philosophy. The Enlightenment Project is what McIntyre associates with the project of moral philosophy especially in the 17th and 18th century and the Enlightenment Project is the project of the attempt to give a rational justification of morality which is based on human nature. In particular, in philosophers like David Hume, we try to base this foundation for ethics on our features of our passions, in Kant, features of reason, and we get a characteristic configuration of moral philosophy in the Enlightenment, a foundational account which tries to explain and yield that impersonal authority of moral judgments based on some facts about human nature. Now the key to McIntyre's book is he thinks that this project fails and it had to fail and it had to fail because of a certain picture I'm going to paint for you just for a moment where we can understand why McIntyre, and this is a picture which McIntyre thinks reveals to us the drama of modern moral philosophy. First of all we begin with the notion of human nature as it happens to be and human nature as it could be if it realized its telos or its end. And this is the picture, this, the transition from one to the other that MacIntyre thinks dominates classical moral philosophy. And I mean by that the moral philosophy of the ancient world. The picture is moral rules and virtues are the things that get us from the way we are to the way we ought to be. And we justify moral rules by showing that they facilitate this transition. Now in the Enlightenment though it turns out that this picture is no longer viable. In the classical picture too we get further support I should say for these rules because they're rooted in divine moral law. You might think about the moral philosophy of the 13th century, the high period of Thomist moral philosophy when the rules and virtue of morality are rooted both in the divine moral law and in the teleological structure of human life. We're pursuing our goods and we're trying to live in accord with the divine law. Something happens in the 17th century, McIntyre argues, that makes this picture untenable. First of all, we have the Reformation. Protestantism and Jansenism more particularly attacks the notion that we can know how to achieve our end because of the total corruption brought about by original sin. So Protestants reject our ability to have this insight into what will make us good. But secular anti-Aristotelians connected with the scientific revolution the movement toward mechanism and our understanding of nature they suggest first of all that we can't we can have no access to divine moral law indeed it's not necessary anyway to understand the world and more importantly this kind of mechanistic science suggests that there's no human nature as it ought to be in any event we no longer understand human life teleologically So we, as it were, have attacks from three different areas here. Our ability to know the end is attacked, the sort of reliability of divine moral law is attacked, and the very teleological structure of the world on which this picture was built is attacked. This is the great catastrophe, MacIntyre wants to say, in the history of ethics. And as a result, moral philosophy takes on the task of simply trying to justify moral rules or virtues based on the way we are. The way we ought to be disappears from the picture altogether. We don't need to think of ourselves as having an end. Even if we did, we couldn't know what it is and God can't help us out either. McIntyre thinks that the Enlightenment project was this little puny attempt over here to build a moral theory based on the way we are by cutting off this entire teleological structure. Now our condition then is one in which the Enlightenment project failed. McIntyre says we of course can't justify these rules which were put there in the first place to show us how to transform ourselves based simply on how we are. And it had to fail. The whole project was incoherent in important senses. And McIntyre's conclusion is that we must then choose between what I'll call Nietzschean postmodern irrationalism or we must return to the Aristotelian tradition of the virtues. And this is why McIntyre ultimately is a virtue theorist. Many people have thought in modern moral philosophy that there are three choices. We can be have Enlightenment foundationalist views, be either a Kantian rationalist or some kind of utilitarian. We can be a sort of classical Aristotelian or we can move forward with the kind of Nietzschean view that we talked about in the first lecture where there's absolutely no foundation to ethics whatsoever human action is just an expression of deep drives perhaps as Nietzsche thought a drive to overcome or overwhelm others we need to recreate ourselves we need to give up these silly ideas that the moral can have a kind of impersonal authority the hinge chapter in McIntyre's great book is called Nietzsche or Aristotle. We cannot pick Kant or utilitarianism because they're instances of a project that failed and left us living in a world of moral fragments. The rest of MacIntyre's book is an attempt to talk about what it would be like to revive the Aristotelian tradition of the virtues under modern conditions. He recognizes that this is a difficult task. He suggests that it's difficult because if we look at the history of the tradition of the virtues, we have different accounts of the virtues. And say the ancient heroic cultures depicted by Homer and Aristotle himself in the New Testament where virtues like meekness come to the fore, a virtue that Aristotle would have despised. Benjamin Franklin thought cleanliness was uh, a virtue, and Jane Austen MacIntyre thinks embodies in her novels a particularly attractive modern picture of the virtues that's Christian in certain respects, Aristotelian, in others, but these are different accounts, and the differences are of quite sorts. We have different lists of virtues, as I said for Aristotle uh, meekness certainly wouldn't be one, for Christians it is. Some people think some virtues are more important than others, and we have different ways of relating virtues, as McIntyre puts it, to the social order. For Homer, in the heroic culture, virtues were what we needed to play our social roles. For Christians, they're going to be something quite different altogether. McIntyre develops a complex and compelling account of the virtues where he tries to relate them to what he calls human practices, the narrative unity of human lives, and the fact that we live in a world of traditions. This material is too complicated for us to talk about in detail now, but McIntyre's point is that what replaces the classical metaphysical framework of human action, the teleological structure that modern science and the Protestant Reformation attacked can be reestablished under modern conditions by building new kinds of communities for human beings in which we live out rich social practices, we retain the narrative unity of our life, a life moving from birth to death along a characteristic sort of trajectory, and we recognize that we live in a world of traditions where rationality is bound to these traditions. But MacIntyre is a pessimist, and I want to end. By reading the very famous last paragraph of After Virtue in which after deploying this beautiful view of the virtues and what it would be to reconstitute them in late modernity, McIntyre speculates in the very last paragraph about our condition and our hope for recovering from this culture of fragments. And McIntyre says, it's always dangerous to draw two precise parallels between one historical period and another. And among the most misleading of such parallels are those which have been drawn between our age in Europe and North America and the epoch in which the Roman Empire declined into the Dark Ages. Nonetheless, certain parallels there are. A crucial turning point in that earlier history, the history of the decline of the Roman Empire in the ancient world, occurred when men and women of goodwill turned aside from the task of shoring up the Roman Imperium and ceased to identify the continuation of civility and moral community with the maintenance of that imperium. What they set themselves to achieve instead, often not recognizing fully what they were doing, was the construction of new forms of community, new forms within which the moral life could be sustained so that both morality and civility might survive the coming ages of barbarism and darkness. If my account of our moral condition is correct, we ought also to conclude that for some time now we too have reached that turning point. What matters at this stage is the construction of local forms of community within which civility and the intellectual and moral life can be sustained through the new dark ages which are already upon us, frameworks for practices, narrative, and tradition. And if the tradition of the virtues was able to survive the horrors of the last dark ages, we are not entirely without grounds for hope. This time, however, the barbarians are not waiting beyond the frontiers. They have already been governing us for quite some time. And it's our lack of consciousness of this that constitutes part of our predicament. We are waiting not for a Godot, referring to Beckett's famous play, waiting for Godot about the absurdity of modern life, but we're waiting for another doubtless very different, Saint Benedict. McIntyre is not calling us here all to turn to monasteries. He's reminding us that in Saint Benedict, in the invention of monastic life in the fourth century, we found a sort of framework within which civilization carried through, and the tradition of the virtues, the Dark Ages to reemerge some thousand years later in modern culture. This is a remarkable book. I hope you will take time to read it, and I apologize for this brief way of going through it, but I hope I've given you some idea of its attractiveness and its trenchant critique of modern culture. We slightly change topics in our next lecture. Look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.